Hi, I'm Ali Hassan, host of CBC's Laugh Out Loud. Do you like to laugh? Because we're serving up big laughs each week. We feature comedians from across Canada. You might already be fans of some of them, and others might be new discoveries. We record emerging comedians and established pros in front of live audiences all across the country, and we promise that you'll be literally laughing out loud. You can find Laugh Out Loud on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Let's say you were trying to put together a really good dinner party. You know, like the kind you go to where everybody, I mean, I haven't, admittedly, I haven't been to that many dinner parties, but like, you know, you sit down and everybody at the table got a story to tell. Everybody at the table's lived a life, and you know you're going to hear some wonderful tales of adventure. The one person you would have to invite is Jenny Lazan. Like, I think Jenny could charge to be at people's dinner parties. She spent decades practicing every type of art in this country that you could possibly imagine. She's been part of a rock and blues band in Vancouver. She played blues flute. She studied mime in Maine, which sounds like a vocal warm-up. Mime in Maine, mime in Maine. There's stage acting, directing, uh, beating... Jenny was also a puppeteer on one of the biggest shows of all time. Yeah, that's right. The Canadian Jenny Lazan was a puppeteer for Jim Henson on The Muppet Show. She also did Fraggle Rock, The Big Comfy Couch, and The Big League's Mr. Dress Up. For Jenny Lazan, making art and being an artist is a way of life. She can't not do it. And right now, Jenny has a new one-woman show called Prophecy Fog, which is playing at the Coal Mine Theatre in Toronto. And it's about all of those different talents that Jenny has developed over the years of being a working artist in Canada. I should say, I did not have a dinner party with Jenny Lazan, though, you know, I'd love to. She did drop by the Q studio, and we talked about why she can't sit still, why she won't just pick one medium. And as you'll find with a lot of artists, this stuff is personal. Here's our conversation. How are you? I'm good. I'd be curious about what food you would serve at that dinner. Oh, uh, I've, whatever I can, whatever I can get down to Subway. I, <laughs> I go, I go down yeah. there with twenty bucks in my pocket and see what I can get. <laughs> yeah. I mean, hope you like cold cuts. Absolutely. How are you doing? Right. I'm good. You do a lot. I do. Is there one yeah. artistic discipline that feels feels home to you? I've been asked that many, many times, yeah. and I can't answer that. No, really? yeah, I, but I but I feel that they're all combined somehow. Like I, I think I'm a better actor because I'm a musician. And I'm a better musician because I'm a storyteller. And uh, directing sort of puts all those things together. Are you still trying new ones? Are you still? Is there, are there still artistic disciplines that you haven't tried that you'd like to try? I, well, yeah. I'd like to learn how to paint. Oh, yeah. My father was an, a visual artist. Was he? My biological father was a visual artist, yeah. So What, I, kind, of, what kind of painting did he do? He, uh, he worked mainly in oils and pastels. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you never, you never picked it up? No, no. Um, spent uh, just a small portion of my life with my dad. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he, he kind of went through this weird thing where he stopped painting beca- and he continued to play music. He was a fantastic jazz piano player. Uh, but he kind of got wrapped up in this idea of uh, creative expression being a sin as a result of his uh, convent residential school experience. So he, he struggled with that a lot. So where, where in BC did you grow up? I grew up in Cranbrook. I was born in Kimberley. I grew up in Cranbrook, which is uh, where Brent Carver lived. And I 
had this great opportunity to watch Brent a lot from from backstage and all of the high school shows that he was in. It's pretty well, awesome. I was about to ask you, like, yeah. how, what kind of art were you taking in when you were growing up? I was really into music. I played flute in the high school band. Hey, and, uh, but my that. foster father was the high school drama teacher. And so in when I moved in with my foster parents, it was all about, well, let's read plays. Let's talk about plays. Let's analyze these things. Let's listen to Broadway musicals in, in front of the fire at night. So it was this beautiful, beautiful place to uh, land. And... Um, and my foster father, well, both my foster parents were just, yeah, be an artist. That, that's really great. <laughs> Do you mind telling me how you ended up with two families in the first place? Absolutely. So uh, when my parents split, I lived with my mother, and then she died of cancer when I was 13. Oh, so I moved in with my foster parents. My father, you know, I never really had an opportunity to talk to him about it, but he relinquished his parental rights to me. So I became a, a ward of the state or an orphan, according to the Canadian government. But my foster parents knew my family. They knew the situation. They knew... They knew me. They knew my mom. My mom had taught at the same high school that my uh, foster father taught at. So, yep, I, I, as the story goes, there was this meeting in their living room, and Paul just marched in and said, she's going to stay with us. So <laughs> it's like, great. But it was an awesome place. It was really, I, I lucked out. I, I landed in a good place. It was a positive foster experience. Very, very positive, yeah. And, and you said they were supportive of your art. Yeah, definitely. Like both my brothers, my foster brothers, my, my one of my foster brothers is a, a crane operator in the film industry in Vancouver. And my other brother teaches uh, drama and music and things at, at a school and in Vancouver. And so, you know, we all grew up with this idea that being an artist was okay. And in fact, like an honor. And you kind of had to use the gifts that you had. So, Well, what, what would they do to give you that idea? Like, well, how would they encourage you to be an artist? It was a constant conversation about, well, how, what do you think about that? Or how would you look at that? Or, and there's a line in my play too, because when I, when I left uh, my foster parents' house after I graduated from high school, my father said to me, like, no matter what you do, just do it creatively. Like, think like an artist. And, and, you know, if you, if you want to be an accountant, just think like an artist when you're, when you're being an accountant. I was like, oh, okay. It took me a while to figure out what that meant, but, uh, but it's, I think it's sort of been the key to my success. What does it yeah. mean? For me, it's about how you look at approaching a task, say, or something that you want to accomplish. And um, filtering that task through the lens of, well, how would I apply my personal creativity to this? Like, I, I, so when I first arrived in Toronto, I got a job at the Great Canadian Soup Company. There you was, go. Yeah, that's the home of an artist right yeah. there. Yeah. And I was, I, I made, my, I had the morning shift. I made muffins. And I, I was just trying out and I was like, okay, so what does that mean? What does that mean to be creative? Like, what does that mean to speak with my customers and present the muffins and make them, <laughs> make them look cool? And, uh, and I, I don't know, I think it was three months into my job where I got offered a, a, a senior position and I was like literally 18. I was like, no, I don't, no, I don't want to do that. But this works. This concept <laughs> works. Yeah. yeah. When your, um, when your mom dies and uh, you you were very clear that you know hey I was very lucky to be able to be with this foster family right away to have a re really good experience with this foster family right away and for them to be supportive of me yep. but I have to imagine to lose your to lose your mom at 13 you're carrying around some grief yeah well it's taken me many many years to come to terms because I always tried to look at things positively and I always tried to go oh I am blessed which I do feel I am but it's taken me many many years to go yeah that was that was kind of crappy. And 
I would say maybe the, maybe 10 years ago I went, oh, 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 that actually was really, really hard. It was really tough. I guess in the moment it doesn't yeah. – in the moment it, it's just something that happens and you just have to figure it out. I know? think you're trying to survive. Yeah. Yeah. It's basic – yeah, it's just survival mode. So what did you figure out? I figured out that uh, it was okay to also say, hey, I had a really messed up kidhood. And mm. for some reason, it took me a long time to acknowledge that and to say that and to and to to own that, I guess. And that also, I think it's actually really made me a better artist in a lot of ways. I have life experience to draw from. So, I mean, yeah. when it, when it first happens, were you making art about it? Were you you know writing poetry about it? Do, you know, were you were you doing anything to process the? Did art help you process the loss of your mom? Yeah, it did I had this. <laughs> I had this um, practice, was, I mean, Kimberly and Cranbrook are surrounded by extraordinary wilderness, and yeah. there was some really incredible places that I would go to, and I would sit with the trees, and I would often bring my, fl- I was really into Jethro Tell at the yeah. time, so I'd bring my flute, and I would just play my flute <laughs> in the in the middle of the wilderness, and I don't know, those, those kinds of things really made me feel feel great. playing Aqualong? I could never actually master the exact uh, note for note, right. but I would play like Jethro Tell. I know what they were saying. Oh, great, another blues flute player. Yes. <laughs> yeah, people go, what? what? I'm sure you yeah, like, Oh, my God. Oh, uh, here's right, you. Oh, Jesus. Just, just what we need. <laughs> this, this city is bursting with blues flute players. Yeah. Um, let's just talk a little bit about your, your, your music. So one of your first gigs yeah. as an artist was singing with a, a rock and blues band in your late teens in Vancouver. What was the scene like then? Well, you know, I mean, as a musician, it's yeah. changed. The music, the, the industry's changed. I mean, yeah. you could book you could book yourself if you had some, some cred. You could book yourself for a week in one location. Like, I, I can't imagine yeah, that now. Over. Like, it's six bands a night now and yeah. color-coded tickets and blah, blah, blah. You know, we had uh, my my partner at the time, uh, David Thrasher, was a blues harmonica player, and he, you know, he'd he'd played with some pretty incredible people, and so we had some pretty nice contacts, and we had um, access to some really great musicians, and were able to play some pretty cool bars in the Vancouver area, and toured, you know, toured all over Southern British Columbia, and got some great stories. Yeah, from touring. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Just some good years touring. Oh man, yeah, yeah, like. Uh, I was just thinking about this the other day. We were in Port Hardy, which is the northern tip of Vancouver Island, and uh, one of the guys in the bar said, "Oh, I'm a halibut fisher, and if you know, if any of you want to come out on my boat the next morning, but you got to get up at five in the morning." So uh, David and I were the only ones who were willing to do that, and he took us out on his boat. He caught some halibut, cut it up, fried it up. Oh, it was, oh man, those kinds of memories are just. Like they they just fill your life with such joy, right? Listen, yeah. I, I, as someone who yeah. toured, I yeah. spent a little bit of time touring small town Canada. Yeah, it's littered with stories like that, yeah. and it's some of the best years of my life. It is fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah it really is. Yeah. yeah. So around when you were playing in the band, um, my my understanding of knowing your story a little bit is that that's sort of when drugs enter your life when you're playing in the band, right? Yeah, well, it started it started there. Never been much of a drinker. I think I'm allergic to it. Yeah, <laughs> which is I don't know, probably good for me. But um, my drugs of choice were hash and coke. So right. you know, those were. Although I have a very stun- funny story about mushrooms, but another Vancouver story. But um, I think it was more. It wasn't so much that it was as a result of the music industry, but just what I was going through at the time. So I think those 
memories of my kidhood and trying to figure that stuff out was they were starting to kind of rise to the surface. And I went, oh, I think I, ah, I should dull those down. Yeah. I should do something to squish them back down. Yeah. And so, um, and I was also, you know, involved in some folks who were, who liked that kind of scene too. And I think I wanted to be a part of that, you know. Did it get bad? It did. Um, I I would say that there was definitely a few years of my life where I was pretty stoned most of the time, yeah, you, know? Yeah, 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 <laughs> you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Until I I got a really bad kidney infection. I landed in the hospital, and the doctor said, "Well, you know, you might want to do something about that." So, I did. If I could paint, I would color the land. could write in my language the words would come I'm Tom Power you're in the middle of my conversation with the multi-talented Jenny Lazan that's actually her voice you're hearing right now that song is called If I Could Paint and it, it makes sense because Jenny told me that's one of the very few things in art she doesn't do as often as she'd like to other than that Jenny Lazan is basically the Swiss army knife of Canadian artists she's the person you call if you need someone to play in your band act in your show, direct your play, or hold a puppet. And speaking of puppets, I'm not talking about amateur puppet shows. In the next part of our conversation, you're going to hear how Jannie Lazan got drafted into the big leagues of professional puppetry. Talking Fraggle Rock, The Muppet Show, Big Comfy Couch, and yeah, Mr. Dress Up. We haven't yet talked about your, your puppetry. Ah, yeah, it's so great. Puppets are fantastic. So my mom was a doll maker. She, she, my biological mother made things with her hands. Like yeah. She just had to keep her hands busy. Do you I ever remember, that. do you have memories of that? Or you, I do. do. Yeah. I remember, I still have some of those beautiful dolls she made for me. Yeah. That's and beautiful. And she made a lot of dolls. So she was always at something. Yep. Absolutely. And she would manipulate the dolls. And, and later on in life, I went, oh, that was sort of the beginning of my understanding of, of how dolls could come to life. And she talked about the fact that each doll had a spirit. And I don't know where that, what that meant for her. But I ran with that too. Like each, each doll is like, I bring that doll to life. I, I help the spirit of the puppet come to life. How did you get into it in the first place? Because I, when I left high school, I went to South Paris, Maine, to the Celebration Mime Theater. And we studied mask and... Forms of puppetry and circus and, and mime and things like that. And um, and I was actually in Vancouver and, uh, you know, playing my my thir- three-chord wonder guitar skills on, yeah. the, on the street to yeah. try to make some money because yeah. it was yeah. so broke. and yeah. Making five bucks a chord. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Granville Street, oh, my God. But anyway, um, this is another part of those great memories. I should write a book. But um, my friend Rob Mills, who was one of the producers of uh, Big Comfy Coach, phoned and said, uh, you should come back to Toronto and audition for Jim Henson because uh, Fraggle Rock is coming here. So I, so I said, well, I packed up my stuff, came back and had a job within a week. It was great. Well, let's, let's, just, let's just make sure we get this, get this right. When I say you were a puppeteer, I mean a puppeteer at the highest level. You mentioned Big Comfy Couch, which was the, the biggest, big, huge part of my childhood. Yeah. I was a big 10-second tidy. Uh, you know, at the end of the game, at the end of the, the, the yeah. show, they would do the 10-second tidy. Who made this big mess? Get ready for the 10-second tidy. 
I still would love to do the 10 second tidy. Uh, Muppet Show, Mr. Dress Up. Um, you get the call, as you mentioned, Jim Henson is auditioning for Fraggle Rock. Yeah. What does that audition look like? Do you have to bring your own puppet? No, they supplied puppets. They had puppets that were made by the, the, the uh, Henson workshop. It was kind of, from what I remember of it anyway, it was a bit of a blur now, but there was a, a bunch of us together. It was a group. The first audition was a group audition, and it was kind of like a, a, a lesson or a workshop, and this is Henson-style puppetry. And so a bunch of us did did uh, exactly what we were told. And, and it was just great, though, because it's, I mean, it's so fun. Like, puppetry is fun, and these characters allow you to... Do crazy and wonderful things. What's what's the difference between Henson style puppetry and norm and other puppetry? Well, Henson has um, so they call them rod and mouth puppets. So the the mouths move, and and then you have to learn how to move the rods which the hands are attached to. So, so Kermit's so, hand kind of goes. You know, I've yeah. seen Kermit's hand kind of go yeah. like this while he's talking at yeah, the same exactly. time. Okay, yeah. so it's yeah. so yeah, that's that's what it is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, whereas uh, Granny on the Mister Dress Up show is like a, the, a sleeve puppet where her mouth doesn't open. It's a different kind of style of puppet, different kind of style of puppetry. A lot of the Canadian puppeteers started out as what we call right hand puppeteers. So what does you, that mean? the only thing you do is move the right hand. If your puppeteer is right handed, they will move the left hand and you move the right hand. So I started out doing that. It's like, yeah, it's like bringing folks coffee when you get a job and then get, you get promoted, you know. You're pretty much just holding the puppet upright. Um, well, you're not holding the puppet because the puppeteer is holding the puppet. Right. And, uh, and, but you're manipulating the right hand on the rod. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And you have to learn how to be in sync with the, pu- the main puppeteer. So that's what I started doing on Fraggle Rock, and then and then I was doing background puppets. I didn't on Fraggle Rock. I never had a a named character or a a, a lead character, but uh, that came with other uh, with other shows with other opportunities. Did you meet Jim? I did. Yeah, he's 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 a good, he was an incredible man. So he's so quiet. He's really he's a a witnesser, a watcher. He watches. And then he'll say something and it's just brilliant, you know. It's like, like what? Did he even, do you remember anything he said to you? More to the group. Like I remember one day he came in and he, he sort of gave us this pep talk about how we needed to bring our, like our whole being and our whole selves to the work because what we were doing was, you know, creating these stories that would help children mainly but also the world like they could feel our energy. He would he would talk about the fact that they could feel our energy. Yeah, that it was important through your puppets or Muppets or puppets or whatever yeah. to be full, fully engaged. And doesn't that remind you of what your mom told you about each of these dolls having a spirit? Absolutely, it's very similar. Mr. Dressup. Yes, you were on Mr. Dressup as as Granny. Oh, I love I love to work with Ernie. He was so he was such an amazing man. Oh, I'm just saying goodbye to Chester and Lorenzo. They're going fishing down at the pond. And I really wanted to go with them too, but I've got a lot of things to do today. Ernie Coombs, Mr. Dressup. What was he like? Very professional. Very, um, uh, he knew what he wanted. Uh, Let me put it that way. By the time I came on the show, because I came on the show when Casey and Finnegan went to preschool <laughs> and they replaced uh, those two characters because uh, Judith uh, had made the puppets and so she took them with her. What was her last name? Uh, Judith Thompson. Judith Thompson. Uh, so when I came on as Granny, uh, you know, Ernie had been doing it for a number of years. So there was a, there was a system, there was a, uh, there was a, a clear knowledge uh, for him anyway in terms of how the show functioned and the producers, et cetera. But... Um, 
with these new puppets, you know, we were able to bring new energy to the show, uh, different perspectives. Like Casey and Finnegan were very specific characters, but Granny ran the community center. And and I was lucky, I you know, I had a conversation with the writers and I said, you know, I don't want to be that kind of Granny that says, you know, go off and play. Like, I want my character to to dress up and play too. Mr. Dress Up, you know that's one of my favorite songs. Oh, is it really? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Mind you, I have quite a different way of singing it. Oh, you uh, do? Would you like to hear it? I'd like to hear you sing anything, Granny. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> the eensy weensy spider went up the it's live to tape. It's you know, not very many shows do that wow. anymore. It's it's a different it's a different way of working for sure. Um, so you really have to be on top of your game. I was starstruck to be honest with you. And like my on my in the auditions and in my first day on set, I was like you know wah, 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 wah. Uh, I was really uh, <laughs> I was a little tongue tied because I also grew up. But I grew up with Casey Finnegan, and I grew up with Mr. Dressup, and and I remember going, oh, I'd, wow, he'd be such a great dad, you know, <laughs> like, because he just just had that really like warm spirit, and and so I remember being pretty starstruck on the first day. Have you shown your daughter your work on that show? Did you show your daughter your work oh, on that show? Oh, she watched. I I <laughs> she watched every rerun. We taped them on VHS, and. Um, and she watched she watched that show like crazy when she was growing up. Would you tell her that that was you? Yes, absolutely. Okay, yeah. Yeah, you, yeah. you wouldn't you, yeah. you'd let her know that there was someone behind the the puppet. Yeah, absolutely. Right, okay, yeah, good. Yeah. Well, and show, should we just show her the puppet? Well, I don't I don't have access to it, but uh, we can fix that right now. Okay. Yeah, we can. We'll, we'll, we'll look after that. We'll look after that. Oh my listen, god, that listen, would be so amazing. Yeah, listen. That's one thing to get you at the CBC. You, know, you can't get a lot, but you can get access to the Mr. Dress Up puppets. Yeah. Can I put on my um, public radio Dr. Phil hat here for a second? Absolutely. Is there something about disappearing into a character, like disappearing into a puppet for you? I, I liken it because okay, I have this really dumb analogy. <laughs> Just, I'm not, I can't believe I'm sharing this with the world. So I sort of feel like I am, it's kind of like a vacuum cleaner where I plug my energy into the wall and the vacuum cleaner comes to life, right? Like you can turn on something when you put the electricity into it, I guess is a better way of putting it. Yeah. So when I have a puppet on or a mask, I did a lot of mask work. I did a lot of street performing when I was younger, like um, toured Canada doing street performance in a mask and... and um, Mask has a similar kind of energy. Characters for me are the same. So the character is always a part of me, but I help energize or send the electricity to the to the puppet or the character or the mask to bring to life. That's a great analogy. Okay. But when yeah. you but when you have a confusing childhood, yes, is there something about being able to hide behind a mask or hide behind a, a puppet and, instead of having to be your full self? I think that's I think that's a myth. Okay. Yeah, it's never worked for me. That that analogy's never. I mean, it may, might work for some actors. It might work for please, others. Please, yeah, I, for sure. Listen, but I love, for me, I love yeah. being wrong. Tell yeah. me, tell me, tell yeah. me. Yeah, for me, I feel like I have to bring, I have to bring all of myself, and really fill up the character, um, so that that character and I have access to all the incredible nooks and crannies and experiences that I've had in my life. I'm Tom Power. More of my conversation with Janie Lazan coming up. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse. 
I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. So I just decided that I would do things in my career as an artist that I felt passionately connected to or that challenged me as an artist in a way that I have never been challenged. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the multi-talented artist Jenny Lazan. While she may not necessarily be a household name to everyone, Jenny has spent decades in this country as a true working artist in every nook and cranny of Canada, busking acting, directing, beating, and puppeteering her way across the Canadian art scene. She told me she's one of those people that can't help but create stuff. You might relate to that, right? Because she loves it and, and it helped make sense of who she actually is. See, Jannie, if you missed this part of our conversation, lost her mom when she was really young. And, and her dad, who was her link to her Métis identity, left the family. Art as it does for a lot of us, art has helped Janny find herself. And in her new one-woman show, Prophecy Fog, it's helped her connect to ideas that are bigger than herself. Ideas like, what is sacred? And have we lost connection with those things? Prophecy Fog is at the Coal Mine Theatre in Toronto right now. Here's what Janny had to say about it. So let's let's talk about the show you're doing, Prophecy Fog. Yep. And you give a lot of yourself yourself to it. For people who haven't seen it, you're visible as soon as the audience enters the theater, and they don't take their eyes off of you for 75 minutes. Just briefly, how would you describe what happens during that 75 minutes? So it's um, everyone sits in a circle. It's very intimate. There's only 61 seats, and, and my playing space is very... Um, uh, it's truncated a little bit, so we're, we're, we have an immediate relationship with each other. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and um, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done as an actor, actually. And uh, Franco Boni was my director, and, and when we were developing the piece, he kept saying, like, don't act. Like, stop acting. Because as actors, we are, we, especially when you're working on bigger stages, you, you feel that your responsibility is to fill the space. And, and these, this situation is not that. It's very, very intimate. And I can feel when I'm trying hard to develop a relationship as opposed to allowing the relationship just to be. But it also requires a different kind of engagement with audience members as well. Like, it's, it's not proscenium. You're, you're right there. I can see you, you know. <laughs> tell, tell me a little bit about the story, story you tell in the play. Well, I started, this all came about because I applied for a residency at the Theatre Centre in uh, 2013. It was... Um, called the Tracy Wright Global Archive, and it was um, in honor of Tracy Wright, who was just this incredible Canadian uh, performer, and she really believed that if you if you traveled the world and you put your feet on other people's land, that you would get to know them better and therefore get to know yourself better, and therefore we would all understand each other a bit better. So the residency was, where do you want to go in the world, and what question would you ask? And I had... I had written two applications. I I was about to press. I'd always want to go to Iceland. I've never been ever since I was six. I was like, I have to get there, and that was my first application. But then there was something that went, no, no, you have to rewrite it, and you have to go to Giant Rock in the Mojave Desert because I had done some research on desecration of sacred spaces, and and I'd been researching Giant Rock and. 
I'm super glad I did. I don't, it would have been a much different show, obviously, if I'd gone to Iceland, but <laughs> which I still haven't gotten to. But um, I was just really blown away about the intersection that this rock has had and the attraction of um, different uh, personalities that have have been drawn to this rock and why. And I and I got um, uh, yeah, it was a really great experience. I took my daughter down in two thirteen, two fourteen. 2014, and, um, and then went again in 2017. So it's sort of a mix of storytelling about the sacred site and, and sort of storytelling about your own life as well. Yes. What I was trying to bring together was uh, to weave together several themes that had come up that were in relationship to my uh, lifelong love of stones and rocks, and also something that my mother had written in she was into the occult in the 1960s, which is what in the 1960s it was called. Mm-hmm. Um, so when she passed, uh, you know, we uh, there were tons and tons of books from Edgar Casey and and Black Elk and Jane Roberts and 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 then I came across this little tiny hand type manuscript, and this is in the play as well. But um, and on the in, in the inside of the book. Uh, was she had written, you know, we, we, we come from the stars, we are star people. And I was like, what, what did she mean by that? So part of my journey down to Giant Rock and also my connection with elders and, and trying to find teachings was... And, and learning more about your Métis identity. Yes, absolutely. And, and to, to try to figure out what my mom was thinking, you know, because I never had a chance to ask her. So Could you have made this work at any other time in your life? I don't think so, no. No, I I think I needed, well, I was interested, I started to become interested about 10, 15 years ago in creating work, like I would never be good at directing Matilda or, you know, something like that. Like I'm a great director, but there's certain things I know that I would not be, it's just not a passion of mine. So I just decided that I would do things in my career as an artist that uh, that I felt passionately connected to or that challenged me as an artist in a way that I have never been challenged. So I'm like, hi, I'm knock on wood. I've got, you know, 20, 20 years of my career left. What do I want to do? I want to do things that I've never done before. So this is this is one of those kinds of projects where it was completely out of my comfort zone and and took me a long time to trust and um and I'm super glad that I did and I, I I'm glad that I took that chance because I, I feel like I've really, really understood now a part of myself as a as an artist that um that I didn't know before. I mean you're such an artist um from from, from top to bottom, you know. We started this conversation talking about how you've worked with pretty much every artistic medium <laughs> yeah, imaginable. Yeah, yeah. So let's let, let me yeah. let's say you weren't a working artist. Like say you had a day job. Say if you were, you know, working as an accountant or a, an artful accountant. <laughs> an but, artful, creative <laughs> way. Yeah. Creative yeah. creative artful donut maker. Yeah. Would you still have to make art? Is that just something in you? I think I would, yeah. I don't I don't know what that would look like or what that would be, but I think I think I'm I'm very much like my mother. I have to be work I have to be using my hands. I have to be making things with my hands somehow. So even even if that's a metaphor, I think I have to be creating things. Yeah. Well, it's 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 really been amazing to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming oh, in. Oh, it's and been a pleasure. Tell me a little bit about your life. And, yeah. and best of luck with the show. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much to Jane Lazan for coming on. Um, so great to tell the story of of an artist in this country who has just done it all. And you can tell the delight that like. 
Sometimes the thing about hosting, I talked about this in the interview, sometimes the thing about hosting the show, and it, rightfully so, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, it's a big, big old show on the, on the Canadian broadcaster, is that I have to be like, um, I have to be a part of someone else's nostalgia. And I feel like when, when I've talked about Mr. Dress Up on the show before, I have had sort of like, have some, some kind of excitement about Casey and Finnegan, even though I have no memory of Casey and Finnegan. Like, they're not a part of my childhood at all. My, my childhood was this later Mr. Dress Up with like the grandmother and the crow and all that. So I was like, yeah, I know I'm getting a look from the people inside the studio going like, who were they? That's called 90s Mr. Dress Up. Point being, it was great to have Jannie Lazan here because she was part of my my childhood Mr. Dress Up and that was very exciting for me. So thanks a lot for that. Thanks a lot to Jannie, I should say, for, for coming in. Uh, the other conversation, man, oh man, if you get the time, uh, listen to this because you might remember back in I mean, if you're NBC, you'll definitely remember 2021, the wildfires in Lytton, BC, and the town was, I mean, devastated. Homes were burned down, businesses were burned down, including the business of Megan Fandrich. She had a cafe there, one of those, one of those cafes. I mean, I've, I've been to places like this all across Canada. They're, they're, they're a cafe, but they're also like a community hub, especially for people who are interested in art. And that burned down. And Megan wrote her first ever poems ever. Um, she wrote them about the experience of losing everything in that fire, losing business in that fire. It's a devastating and powerful and kind of weirdly like amusing book of poetry. She's here to talk a little bit about her story and to read one of the poems. So go check that out wherever you got this podcast. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.